Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this first episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. I'm excited to be sharing with you my thoughts about geopolitics, global economics, and financial developments that catch my attention. This episode, however, is going to focus on an interview that I did last week over a webcast with Real Vision Media. They had asked me to discuss my 20 global developments to watch in the years ahead, and I did so with a thorough discussion of the nuances that affect each of the developments that I highlighted in my post. And so here is the unedited version of my interview and webcast. I hope you enjoy it. Today we have uh, someone special, one of my favorite people in the Real Vision community is Vikram Mancharamani. He's an author, academic, and advisor. He's a lecturer at Harvard, founder of Kalan Capital, and author of Boom Bustology, Spotting Financial Bubbles Before They Bust. His next book uh, we're gonna be sending to all of you upon its release is titled Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. Uh, Vikram is a highly sought after speaker and has millions of readers um, that enjoy his multi-lens approach to thinking through uncertainty. LinkedIn listed him twice as their number one top voice for money, finance, and economics, and Worth Magazine profiled him as one of the 100 most powerful people in global finance. He has a, only has a PhD and two, and two master's degrees from MIT and a bachelor's from Yale, so he's uh, not really uh, an esteemed guy. <laughs> anyway, um, a little bit about uh, Vikram. He describes himself as one who traffics in ideas. He's a global generalist who takes pride in connecting rather than developing the proverbial dots. Um, he's one of the few people that actually goes to countries and, and does on the ground research. You know, I've worked at a variety of hedge funds and most people are stuck behind screens. Vikram actually goes to 70 countries around the world, which he'll be speaking to and sees this stuff firsthand. Um, so what will he discuss? For the last six years, Vikram has produced an annual set of five-year forward predictions. He's gonna walk us through his recently published list of developments to watch. Some are highly controversial, others are more accepted, but they should be really thought-provoking. I'm really excited. Without further ado, and sorry for the long-winded intro, but Vikram Mancharamani. Great, thanks, Tyler. Appreciate the introduction, uh, and uh, thanks everyone for uh, for jumping on this uh, this call. I'm excited to share with you some of my ideas, specifically around these sets of predictions that I put out every year. Um, and you know, most people I think put out predictions of what's going to happen in that next 12 month period of time. I have to tell you, I think that's really hard to do. Uh, I find it's, it's, there's a lot of cross currents, there's a lot of noise in the system, and actually I find it easier to find some signal when you look out further. And so what I try to do is look forward in a five-year view and try to come to some sense as to some of the big developments that we need to pay attention to that can really move the needle. So as Tyler mentioned, I put out these sets of uh, rolling five-year forward predictions. I put them out every January, usually uh, the first, or usually by the end of the first week of January, I publish them. Um, and so I, what I'm going to do now is is walk you through the 20 predictions or, or 20 global developments that I think are worth watching over the next five years. So the first one, um, many of you have heard, and and some of these, by the way, will will come together in an interesting way as I wrap this up at the end for financial market implications, which I know many of you probably care about. And again, happy to take questions on that. But 
the first one I start with is, you know, there's this debate that has been going on. It's on the cover of Fortune, the cover of The Economist, etc. All sorts of corporate leaders, the Business Roundtable, Roundtable and others are talking about how we need to redefine the purpose of a corporation. And it has been effectively described by the modern media as a debate between shareholders and stakeholders and how it's no longer really okay to maximize shareholder value. Instead, one needs to care about the community, one needs to care about the workers, one needs to care about things other than profits and other than shareholders. Now, taken at face value, that would imply all else equal, less margin for corporates that we invest in, less profits, um, assuming all else equal. Now, of course, all else is never equal. Uh, but, so here's my take on it. I think this debate is absolutely mischaracterized and actually misleading. It's presented a false trade-off and in fact is hiding what I think is a deeper disease that I hope will surface within the next five years. And that deeper disease is short-termism. Really what we're talking about is short-termism rather than long-termism. Of course, if we think beyond one quarter, if you think into years or possibly even longer than years, what you find is that, of course, you need to take care of your workers because they won't work for you unless you do. Of course, you need to take care of your environment because you live in that environment. Of course, you need to take care of your community because your workers come from them and you live in that community. So I think this is actually a, a, a mischaracterized trade-off, and I think that mischaracterization will surface in the next five years. Two, um, this is a very controversial prediction uh, that I have, but I will suggest to you that India will probably not develop the middle class of substantial size that many people think it will. So you hear uh, executives like Tim Cook and others say, you know, India is the next China. And I just laugh at that. I think there's no way that India will turn into being the next consumer society with the large middle class the way China has become. And the main reason I think about that is that I believe the window for large population countries that have cheap labor to industrialize and build a large middle class through a manufacturing strategy, I think that window has closed. I think automated manufacturing and technology have basically eliminated the need for unskilled, illiterate workers. And India, unfortunately, has a lot of those. And so I think India will fail to build out the large middle class that everyone thinks, and, uh, and that will be a real disappointment. I think India is a candidate, in my eyes, to be the single largest disappointment to emerging markets investors in the next five to 10 years of any place in the world. So uh, that's number two. Uh, number three, I think this, uh, this idea of uh, inequality is really problematic and has created a large portion of the instability around the world. People feeling like the system doesn't work for them, etc. cetera. Uh, the social contract is broken. And so one of the things I think that's going to happen here is I think it probably gets more redistributionist. I think we get more... Uh, reactions to, to large inequality. And, um, and it's, it continues to get worse, if you will, from a inequality oriented uh, policy generation. And one way that I suggest in these predictions I put out is that I, uh, and I've talked to a couple members of Congress uh, and, and other legislators in America about this. Uh, I think others around the world are thinking similarly, but there are logics to say, maybe we should connect tax rates 
on the high earners and the wealthy to the gains experienced by the low earners or the middle class. So for instance, could you have marginal tax rates on the extremely wealthy or the extreme high earners tied to wage gains for the middle class? And so if average wages rise 4%, then taxes stay where they are. If average wages rise 6%, tax rates actually fall on the, uh, the upper uh, earners, if you will. Or if middle class wages actually stagnate or go in reverse, while well, maybe taxes on the rich get higher. And so these sort of structurally, uh, if you will, um, linked to law uh, tax adjustment policies, I think is something that's on, those are on the drawing boards and they may be coming, uh, sort of to incentivize this natural inequality stabilization. Um, all right, number four, something Tyler mentioned, uh, something I've written a, a little bit about, last chapter of Boom Bustology that came out in May highlights this. I really do think this passive investing bubble uh, has been blown perhaps too far, too quick. And I think in the next five years, we definitely see a bursting of this bubble. Um, you know, we've gotten to the point where flows have de facto driven prices. Um, and we've seen less differentiation, uh, good stock, bad stock, doesn't really matter if there's inflows, uh, all boats rise with that tide. And so this idea of uh, flows driving prices and then because of the market cap weighted indices, uh, the highest market cap weighted stocks end up needing to be bought the next day by the index, which again drives the index up. Um, and so you get this, uh, this, this virtuous cycle when there are inflows. And it's my suspicion that in the next five years, we will see that virtuous cycle turn vicious and outflows will drive selling, which will drive more outflows, which will drive more selling. Um, and so I think that uh, in the next five years seems like an increasing probability. Vikram, um, on the passive stuff, do you think that regulation will kind of rear its head? Are politicians talking about that as being a huge risk? Or do you think this is more of it will collapse upon itself as you know, things get too extreme? Yeah. So look, uh, Tyler, I've been hearing more about the regulation on some of the double, triple, uh, the levered ETFs, the inverse ETFs, all of those things that are used predominantly for day trading or short-term speculation. Um, so I, so I, I sense regulatory pressure perhaps on those before on general um, index-oriented ETFs. Um, but I do think the idea of passive investing, which was a good one, long ago has been taken too far. And I think, you know, I think the public should be at least made aware of this risk. Yeah. Uh, th there's been religion on this matter, which is you just buy and forget. And I don't think that's ultimately going to prove out to be the right thing to have done. You know, one, of the, one of the things you mentioned, which I'm really surprised hasn't reared its head on the, the national narrative is how prices have, you know, decoupling from actual fundamentals changes the idea of capitalism in itself, where yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point, uh, Tyler. So ultimately, what I've talked about, and I talked about this in the last Real Vision episode I did, but um, look, capitalism is based on the efficient allocation of resources. This system has helped produce inordinate economic wealth. It's taken hundreds of millions of people out of poverty into great lives. It's introduced the incentives for 
uh, innovation, entrepreneurship, the progress in all fields from healthcare to you name it. It's been amazing. Um, and yet the very basis of capitalism is a price mechanism that telegraphs where and where where demand is and sort of um, helps set uh, equilibrium between supply and demand and sort of allocates resources that are scarce efficiently. Um, well, passive investing gets you to the point where at least in the stock market, you can see how that logic could break down, right? The whole logic of passive investing is buy and sell independent to price. Um, well, hold on a sec. I, don't, I didn't realize that was a good investment strategy. It worked because the idea was passive was a small portion of the market. Let the active members, the active managers of the world fight over prices. They'll get them right. They'll spend their resources and passive gets to sort of ride shotgun for free or a very low cost. Um, that's all fine and dandy if the active managers actually battle it out and get right prices. But if passive overtakes uh, active, which we've seen happening, definitely incrementally, likely on a full base effect very soon if it hasn't already happened, um, well then that price mechanism suddenly gets broken. You can see inefficient companies get access to capital and stay in business for longer than they should. You, you literally get a whole bunch of inefficiencies throughout the whole system and capital gets misallocated. And ultimately that's the opposite of efficient allocation of resources that capitalism promises to do. Yep. And also on top of that, you know, I think a lot of it is generally the baby boomers forced into these things with, you know, no other alternative. So for, for me, I, I think that demographic switch will actually cause the reversal rather than any political um, decisions or, or any other. Yeah. No, no, look, you're right, Tyler. The fact that there you got, what, 10,000 baby boomers retire in a day or something like that. When they start going from net inflows into the market to net outflows, uh-oh, you could yeah. get a little catalyst right there that will let this whole system sort of go from virtuous to vicious. Interesting. Well, let's move on in the, okay. in the same time so we don't... Yep. Sure. No, happy to keep going. And again, happy to also take a lot of questions at the end if we have time. So number five, probably the least controversial logic that I think here is, um, you know, I think the electric vehicle story actually does take place. Um, it, you know, I think you'll see it uh, accelerate. The global mandates are coming. By the way, I don't think this necessarily helps climate change, but I do think uh, it's a nice, easy political win to say, hey, we don't have cars driving around polluting our environment. Um, now we have, in some countries, coal-fired power plants uh, providing the electricity. So, uh, but I do think electric vehicles are coming. That means the whole supply chain for uh, batteries, et cetera, which is currently thought to be massively oversupplied. I think there's a risk that that could be undersupplied. I think lithium and other battery materials, which are way out of favor, um, could turn out to be very, very good investments on a three to five year view from here. Um, all right, number six, this is really disruptive stuff. I will argue to you, this might in fact be perhaps the most disruptive technological development uh, from a geopolitical perspective uh, in the world uh, on the next five years. This is potentially as destabilizing, if not more destabilizing than the invention of nuclear weapons was. Hypersonic weapons are weapons that go at somewhere between the speed five to, ten, five to 20 times the speed of sound. And as a result, uh, there is effectively no known defense against these. Turns out, uh, as reported by numerous sources, the Chinese and the, the Russians are two to three years ahead of the Americans when it comes to hypersonic weapon development. Um, and so, 
I think this could potentially result in a surge in global defense spending. I think it destabilizes uh, Asia at the sort of whole periphery of China, gets thought to be no longer a US-dominated uh, safe zone, um, and, and certain things that we've come to depend on could call, be called into question. So I'm happy to come back to that because there's other topics I'm going to address that, that touch on this. Um, Global supply chains shift. Um, here's, and I think it was driven initially by this US-China trade conflict, but the logic of just-in-time, lowest costs, I think will give way to just-in-case resilient supply chains. And I think because of the increasing use of robotics, the, the source of uh, sort of cheap labor uh, in these emerging markets becomes less competitive. Um, and so as a result, I think supply chains shift uh, the physical distance between producers and consumers likely falls. Um, and so um, I think on the margin, uh, certain countries, perhaps a Mexico, may prove to be beneficial. They may benefit from these types of developments. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that Asian supply chains will disappear. Uh, I just think that they will be less important than they have been to date. Um, so we'll come back to that also. Uh, number eight, quantitative easing. I don't care what the Fed tells you they're doing, they're printing money, um, right? And so you can argue whether or not it's the same magnitude. You could argue whether they're replacing some natural growth of money supply that they need to, et cetera. I'm happy to engage in that debate. But I think the demand for um, non-printable currencies will drive, um, will be driven a lot higher. Uh, so non-printable currencies, what is that? That's gold, uh, that's precious metals. It's probably, uh, for some people, uh, some of these cryptocurrencies. Uh, but I do think, um, you know, uh, we are going back to having more printing, easy, money, easy monetary policy, uh, easier, excuse me. Um, and I think that's just because technology is racing ahead, production's far, you know, supplies racing far in advance of demand. And so the downside pressure continues to be there from a pricing perspective. And uh, that doesn't necessarily work very well given the quantity of debt that we have in the world. So quantitative easing. The, the world's central banks are, are the number one biggest buyers of gold right now. Uh, they just had their biggest year ever in buying gold. So they, they're on it too. Yep, yep, no, doesn't surprise me. Um, so number nine, I'm just going to keep the pace going here. Sorry, Tyler, I don't mean to dismiss your comments, but I no, want to just no, get yeah. through it all. Yeah. So here's something I think could be very, very disruptive. Uh, I think China is now getting to the point where they're saying enough is enough. Our wayward province known as Taiwan needs to be reintegrated. And how they reintegrate that, I think, is the big question. But I think they start the process here in the next five years. I think they try to do it. Politically, diplomatically, I think they took this real, um, this recent Taiwanese election as a uh, as a, a step in the wrong direction. Unfortunately, I think they blame Hong Kong protests for that, and I think the result is uh, Taiwan becomes thought of as more urgent. And in a five-year view, I think um, this becomes a flashpoint. Whether it turns into a you know geopolitical flashpoint or done more diplomatically, I think that's that's yet to be determined. But I think Taiwan resurfaces as a major global issue um, here in the uh, in the next five years. Um, all right, this there's not much to say other than I got two bites at this apple. Um, if, I, if I'm wrong this time around, maybe next time, hopefully uh, I could get this one right. Um, and so, uh, you know, 
not much to say there. Uh, number 11, uh, training expenditures. So I think that we're going to start realizing in this era of increasing technological innovation and increasing interdependence that people become more important, not less important. And so just as we used to capitalize uh, equipment that we purchased that has a useful life of many years, so too might we eventually get to the point of capitalizing training expenditures on developing human capital. This actually, it sounds sort of like a trivial accounting thing, but it has massive ramifications for everything from human resource management straight on through uh, profit reporting. Um, turns out those who invest in their people will see uh, probably higher uh, loyalty from their, their employees. You'd probably see lower turnover. You'd probably therefore see uh, less short-termism in a career sense. And you'd probably also see more investment in people. Um, so I think this has the potential to really snowball in a big way. And the Financial Accounting Standards Board is, I think, uh, mulling concepts such as this. I don't know if they've gone far enough to think they can capitalize it, but I think it could accelerate, particularly as companies start saying, hey, why do I have to take the hit on investing in my people when my people are with me for 15 years and, you know, and I got to take the hit on investing in them uh, when I invest a large time or a large portion of my budget in training. Uh, it should have a five, 10 year amortization schedule or whatever it is. Um, by the way, it also might mean that you have to write, you know, you lose a top executive, you might have to take a hit because you just lost some of your asset value. And, you know, as an investor, you might actually agree with that. Um, Number 12. So every year I look for some really cool technologies that I think are out there. And the two that I highlight here, one is electronic yarn. Um, and it's, uh, if you look up Twistron, T-W-I-S-T-R-O-N, Twistron, you'll see this, you know, it could have a, uh, a simple role such as, you know, you wear a sweater and your movement helps create enough heat so that you could wear a little sweater out in the winter and have enough heat to stay warm in frigid temperatures, uh, all self-generated. Uh, alternatively, these yarns could be used uh, by dropping them in any uh, ocean area and tidal movement of up and down could create electricity. And if you can do this efficiently enough, this actually can actually, this could actually move the needle when it comes to energy generation. So I think it's potentially a tight call on a five-year view. On a 10-year view, I think this actually gets some traction. Uh, the other technology I mentioned is smart dust. Um, and again, happy to come back to that in, uh, in, in, during the questions here. Um, all right, another controversial one, uh, which actually I have to admit, I took a, a, a little, um, a little um, I guess a contrarian indicator to my view here, came out this morning with the British saying that they were going to work with Huawei. Uh, but it's my view that we're going to see two global economies. There's going to be two global ecosystems that economic activity takes place in, one that's going to be Chinese-led, the other is going to be Western-led. And it's because I think this U.S.-China rivalry is not just a simple trade war. I think it's much, much more. This is a tech war. This is a space race. This is an arms race. This is a lot more complicated. And I think ultimately it's going to result in two global economies and countries are going to have to choose which ecosystem they live in. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but that's a possibility. Privacy. Uh, I think there'll be a backlash. Um, I mean, this, uh, this, this, the rise of surveillance capitalism uh, is, uh, is really stunning, actually, um, in terms of the amount of data that's available for uh, tech companies to use uh, to 
effectively try to manipulate us towards commercial or political ends. Um, and I think that that's going to increasingly uh, result in a backlash. And I don't know if it's regulatory or uh, consumer driven, but you're starting to see, of course, in Europe, uh, lots of regulatory action on privacy. Um, could you see large anti-big anti tech uh, regulations emerge? Absolutely. I think that's a real risk. Uh, would some of the big tech get broken up? I don't know about that, but you know, I think there's, a, there's definitely uh, more pressure on that front. Um, again, this, is, this falls under the, the, uh, the idea of, I also tend to profile one really interesting cutting edge uh, company. And there's a company called Sky Cool Systems uh, that is harnessing the cold of outer space to, to, to reduce um, you know, the energy demands that come from air conditioning. And so you know, the idea is pretty simple. If you have something very cold and you have something very hot, the hot moves to the cold and the cold moves to the hot. And if you can actually channel it, uh, from outer space into the, uh, into the environment here, <coughs> excuse me, um, well then actually radioactive cooling becomes a possibility. And so Sky Cool Systems is the company I propose. Um, number 16, um, I believe that the demand for animal protein emerging from a large and growing middle class around the world is gonna cause increasing pressure on food supplies particularly the protein demand because of its exponential impact um, through uh, the animals have to eat, et cetera, uh, through to end grain demand. I think this oversupply in the ag sector today will get sucked up and we will actually find that there's a possibility of real potential strategic value to having ag resources. Particularly if these two global ecosystems emerge, economic ecosystems, the, the, the US one, US led one, and then the sort of Chinese led one, or the Western led one and the Chinese led one. Uh, I've done some modeling, and it turns out that there's a lot of resources that will appear in both ecosystems if you make some guesstimates as to which way countries fall. But one thing that happens is ag is disproportionately falling in the US ecosystem, and it could turn out to be strategic. Um, and if it's strategic, then you get a different dynamic. It's conceivable that countries realizing uh, that yield becomes the single most important variable, your agricultural yield to pay attention to, that fertilizer becomes a, a critically important resource and strategic fertilizer reserves actually are starting to get built, get built uh, by countries. Number 17, um, I think the way I describe this uh, development in, in my write-up is that medical insurance companies uh, start lobbying against teenage use of social media because of the mental illness, such as depression and anxiety that comes from it. And I think, you know, social media companies start asking for uh, curriculum uh, to help uh, users of social media understand uh, the, the potential risks of, of using social media. Um, and so whether that's some degree of self-regulation uh, or whether it becomes externally imposed regulation, I think this becomes thought of as almost a, a public health issue. Uh, number 18, uh, for those of you that have not read the novel Ghost Fleet, I really recommend you do this. Um, and um, so the, the way I describe this development is uh, effectively the Chinese Communist Party faces an existential risk. Uh, and it becomes something domestic that spurs it. Uh, you know, I wrote these up before coronavirus. 
Um, but you know, maybe it's coronavirus, maybe it's domestic unhealth, maybe it's un, you know, something having to do with healthcare concerns, maybe it has to do with uh, corruption, maybe it has to do with the environment. I'm not sure what it is, but the Chinese Communist Party faces a risk. You see Hong Kong today effectively as a possible risk, maybe Taiwan, who knows what it is, but something causes potential Chinese Communist Party risk. Um, Ghost Fleet is a novel of World War III, U.S. versus China, um, and it, it's it's an extremely well-written book that's very thought-provoking. I highly recommend it. All right, number 19, you know, there's been some, some uh, venture investing in the idea of asteroid mining. I think that's just a farce. I don't think it's anywhere near likely. I think it's way, way, way uh, in the future, if at all. Uh, it's so expensive to launch anything up into space anyway, let alone get up there and get materials that we may want here or use those materials to build things there. I don't think that's going to happen. But seabed mining, I think, is starting to take off. Um, and, you know, the uh, the International Seabed Authority is now, I think there's 35 or 36 uh, exploration permits that have been issued. So I think this is actually going to start getting more and more attention. Uh, environmentals will, of course, uh, protest it um, and they'll get some traction. But um, I think it's it moves forward uh, slowly. And then the last thing is really about IMO 2020. Um, and I think uh, that is going to be far more disruptive than people feel. Uh, we're about a month into it, but the implications that I'm hearing from ship owners are twofold. Number one, um, really old ships, they're gonna scrap. So there's a, there's a drop off in demand, or sorry, supply of ships. Uh, number two, um, the other thing that's going to happen is people are not going to buy new ships because they're now worried about IMO 2030 or future regulations. And they're going to say, you know what, I'm not buying a 30 year useful life asset if I'm not sure whether it's going to have useful life beyond 20 years. And so I think there'll be less new, new ships coming, uh, removal of existing ships. And I think, you know, demand continues to chug along in a very basic way because we're moving raw materials. So specifically dry bulk shipping is the area I think has some really interesting dynamics ahead of it. Um, but I do think shipping rates generally should see some upside pressure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Manchramani's website at www.manshramani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.